and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! RFM, here you and I are again. We are back, uh, ready to do some rocking and rolling. What are you thinking, my friend? I am thinking that it's great to be here where I always am. Yeah, you're always where you are. That's the cool thing about you, RFM. That's the cool thing. You are always where you're supposed to be. Well, maybe not that, but where you are is where you is. Wherever I am, it's the life of the party. There it is. I, I don't disagree with that. Uh, here we are back again, another episode of Mormonism Live. And RFM, this was your week. I'll turn it over to you in just a second. Uh, folks, uh, we will just say, please, by all means, uh, help keep this show going. Donate to mormonismlive.org. Hit the donate button. Send a few bucks our way. Uh, this takes time and effort and energy. And you've heard all that a thousand times before, but we're going to keep saying it. Only about uh, times, Bill. Yeah. There is already 140 people who are really? uh, members of the Mormon Mormonism Live Facebook group. Mm -hmm. So folks can join there, go to Facebook, go to Mormonism Live. Uh, it's its own group. Uh, ask to be part of that. We'll approve it. And you guys can keep conversations going there around the episodes. Uh, we are on Facebook in multiple places. We are on YouTube. We are on Periscope, Twitter, Twitch, YouTube. We're all over the internet. It is crazy. Here it is, just two, uh, two middle-aged guys just rocking and rolling on the internet using technology. We're everywhere you want to be. That's right. We are everywhere you want to be. Uh, RFM, thank what are you we for the compliment calling me middle age. Yeah. I, I had to I had to pause for a second to figure out how I wanted to word that. Yeah. I didn't want to call me old, so it had to be the two old guys <laughs> or two middle-aged guys. So um, go ahead and run us through what we're going to talk about tonight and get us started. Well, first off, I have to ask you, because we left off last week with uh, an individual who was posting comments by the name Q. Just the letter Q. <laughs> yeah. It appears, it wasn't clear, but it appears he was a, an apologist of some sort wanting to insert himself into the proceedings. And you had put out a call, uh, rolling out the red carpet for him to come on if he so chose. And I saw that on your Facebook yeah. page, I think. Has there been any response from Q? No, I think he's busy helping Jordy LaForge on the Enterprise. That's a next generation That's joke. That's a next it? generation joke. Q is that alien guy who kept bothering Picard and... and uh, William Riker. Well, I stopped uh, with the original series. Yeah, Q has never. Q, you stopped with the Okay. Q has never. You're missing out, my friend. Star Trek's next generation is uh, top-level primo stuff. Yeah, or as I call it, Sesame Street in space. <laughs> so uh, Q never messaged back. I never got a private message from any other apologist either. Carrie Molstein, John Lynch, uh, uh, Scott Gordon. Um, you know, any of those guys, nobody, nobody wants to go on Mormonism live and battle you and me in a war of words that would be handled kindly and respectfully, but would Absolutely. certainly deal with the, with the facts and the data. So no Q. Okay. Well, that door is still open for Q and for any other Mormon apologist who wishes to come on the show. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the open invitation, the door is open, the windows open, the cellar doors open anywhere they want to go. Well, speaking of Mormon apologetics, I'm glad you brought that up. Actually, I think <laughs> I did. This is the segue, okay, into tonight's subject, because we're going to talk a little bit about Mormon apologetics. 
and some aspects of what I think of as manipulation, shading things, hiding things from the audience in order to try and win the argument. Things that I used to do when I was an apologist and which I regret greatly since then. But we're going to focus specifically on uh, the evidence of the name of the book of Alma, excuse me, the name Alma in the Book of Mormon. Okay. And this is something that I became acquainted with at least as of 1995, because at that time, Daniel C. Peterson, who was the godfather of Mormon apologetics, since he's come to be known as the artful dodger of Mormon apologetics, at least that's what I called him in episode 81 of Radio Free Mormon. Um, He produced a video about evidences for the Book of Mormon. It's titled, A Scholar, that's him, A Scholar Looks at Evidences for the Book of Mormon, came out in 1995, produced by Farms, and in it he presents a bunch of evidences for the Book of Mormon. And here is the clip that we have. It's just about maybe a minute, two minutes long. It's not too long. But talking about the evidence of the book, excuse me, I keep saying the Book of Alma, the name Alma in the Book of Mormon as an evidence for the Book of Mormon. Do you have that clip, Bill? I think we are ready to play it. All right, let's go. Let's uh, let's put it up on the screen. I know that man. And here we go. Let's uh, X this little thing out so it doesn't bother us the rest of the night. I think maybe one of the most intriguing ways to look at Joseph Smith is to look at some of the mistakes that he made, quote unquote, and see how he's been. He's looking good, body. young, and isn't he? I think I've 1995. I was too. One that I'm particularly Sorry. fond of is the personal name Alma. Now, we know the name Alma. It's it's been a woman's name in the West for quite some time. You find it in phrases like alma mater. Uh, it's a Latin-based woman's name, not given to men. Critics of the church for a long time have made fun of Latter-day Saints because they say it's only among the Mormons that you will find men with the name Alma. How ridiculous. This is not an ancient Semitic man's name. This is a relatively modern Latin woman's name. So Joseph Smith clearly made a mistake. Well, it's here, I think, that his performance is most impressive. Because if Joseph Smith had ever heard the name Alma before, That's exactly how he would have heard it, as a woman's name. So how is it applied to a man in the Book of Mormon? Well, it is uh, to at least two prominent people in the Book of Mormon. And it's only been recently that discoveries have come forth that have vindicated that name as an ancient Semitic man's name. The discovery was made not by a Latter-day Saint, but by Yigal Yadin, the most prominent of all Israeli archaeologists probably in this century, a man who went on to become uh, Deputy Prime Minister of Israel. He was Chief of Staff of the Israeli military in the 48 War of Independence. A very impressive man and a great scholar. And while investigating a cave down by the Dead Sea, he found a document which bore the name Alma, son of Judah unmistakably written A-L-M-A in everything Yadin published about that excavation. It's a remarkable thing. Again, Joseph Smith probably, had he sought guidance on what to come up with as a masculine name for his Book of Mormon, would have made a mistake. It turns out a seeming mistake is not a mistake at all, but a powerful vindication of of his prophetic claims. And yet, uh, you will still see articles written ridiculing that name by people who should know better. In fact, in one case, people that I happen to know do know better, but go on making the claim and repeating the old, tired argument as if it were true, which it's not. Alma is a vindication of the Book of Mormon. There's another one that's currently found. So, let me start off. Um, I remember this. I remember being newer in the church and reading about apologetics and hearing the apologists say the critics claim that Alma is a feminine name. And here is our response. Um, But one thing I, and I thought that was a real argument. 
RFM, but is that is that really something the critics are putting out there a lot? Well, let me tell you that I certainly took it for granted that Daniel Peterson knew what he was talking about when he talks about these critics. And he may be alluding to personal correspondence with some uh, evangelical anti-cult ministry people that he knows. I'm not sure. All I can tell you is that I have done an awful lot of reading, especially back in the 80s in anti-Mormon literature when I was uh, neck deep into Mormon apologetics. I never actually came across that I can recall this particular argument against yeah. the Book of Mormon. There are certain arguments that crop up all the time. Uh, adieu, believe it or not, crops up all the time. And I don't think that's particularly a good argument. But I don't recall this argument coming up very frequently. I don't recall it coming up at all. Now, it will end up being that there is at least one phrase from one book from 1978 that does mention it. And we'll get to that at the end of this podcast because that's part of the materials. But it doesn't seem to be something that's just out there everywhere. And the critics are saying this all the time. It seems to be almost the case where it, and I don't want to state this too broadly because I haven't read every single piece of anti-Mormon literature in, in the world, but it seems almost like we're, we're creating a straw man of sorts that there's these critics out there that are laughing uproariously about uh, the Book of Mormon and saying, Alma, it's a feminine name. It's a Latin name. And how stupid of Joseph Smith to apply a Latin woman's name to a man in the Book of Mormon. Yeah. And, and it seems like such a small little thing to act, to hold it up and go like, oh, here's the critic's argument and we solved it. And hence we, the church is true and there aren't really any major issues. But I, I think there's an apologetic game when you point out the little small issues and portray those to the general membership that these are the issues. And you have answers when uh, we say, you know, Jesus wasn't born in, in Jerusalem. He was born in Bethlehem. And we answer that question, uh, which is another one that the apologists like to bring out. Um, when you make it about small things, the average member has no clue that there are really big issues out there that have uh, real big problems with them. Right. And I almost sense a little bit of... Um Remember the uh, the Fair Mormon video that we talked about in episode one of Mormonism Live, where they mischaracterized Jeremy Reynolds in the CES letter as saying that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon using a Ouija board. And then they absolutely went bonkers and called that it was an absolute lie. When, when, when we looked at the actual document, that's not what Jeremy Reynolds was saying. Right. He was using it as a metaphor. Right. So there is this aspect to it, I think, of creating something that's really focused on by the critics, really something that they are frothing at the mouth about. And maybe to a certain extent, overinflating yeah. uh, the uh, the strength of the argument that the critics are making in order to come in and save the day and show how wrong those stupid critics are. Yeah, absolutely. So, having said that much, mm -hmm. uh, this is a, I have this videotape. This is a VCR tape, by the way. That's why it looks the way it does. I got it from Farms back in 1995. I played it a number of times. One of my very, very favorite evidences for the Book of Mormon was this name, Alma, because the way it's presented here, it's astonishing. It is absolutely astonishing. It's a wonderful argument. It's a very, very neat evidence. And I thought so for a long time. By the way, parenthetically, there are still a couple of things that Daniel Peterson is not mentioning in this video, which I found out later. First off, he's full of details about uh, the different uh, offices that Yigel Yadin held. He has all those off the top of his uh, head. What he's not telling you is that this document that was found that has this name Alma ben Yuda in it is actually from the second century CE. In other words, it's about 130 years after Christ. So yeah, this is that's part an of the, issue. It's part of the Bar Kokhba 
rebellion. This is the second Jewish rebellion after the first one. Uh, it didn't go very well. They tried again under their leader named Bar Kokhba. And this document is from that time. It's around, dated to around 130. Uh, I keep trying to train myself to say CE instead of uh, AD. But so in other words, it's over 700 years after the last contact point that the Book of Mormon peoples had with the Hebrew culture when they left Jerusalem around 600 BC. So there's a huge divide of time there. Now, it's still a name and it's still something, but I noticed that Daniel Peterson does not mention that it's 700 years after the fact. So that's one thing. Another thing is he makes it really clear that the strength of this argument is that this name Alma is a name that is not given to men. He mentioned that. I was writing down notes of his quotes. And he also said about Joseph Smith, if he ever heard the name Alma before, he would have heard it as a woman's name. Okay. That's the power of the argument. That's really the strength of the argument that he would have no idea that Alma would ever be a man's name. Nobody he knew would be named Alma. If he knew anybody named Alma, it would be a woman. And here it shows up in the Book of Mormon as a man's name. What is he thinking? Well, right. look at the Bar Kokhba document. We have Alma as an ancient attested Semitic name. Now, if you'll hang on just a second here. Excuse me. So here's what happened. I just want to tell this story. I told the story originally back in episode 41 of Radio Free Mormon, which was June of 2017, by the way. I went back and I looked. But I'm going to say it again in case uh, nobody heard that one or you forgot it. Because this was very significant to me. As I said, I thought this was a very important evidence for the Book of Mormon. And I started hearing, and this was be around 2006. It would have been before 2007. I'm virtually certain of that. I can't, I can't swear to it, but I'm virtually certain of it because I've been giving a lot of thought to it. That'll be important here in a second, the date. I was in contact with Daniel Peterson through a message board, private messaging. And I had been hearing this scuttlebutt, this rumor that actually there were men named Alma in Joseph Smith's day. Mm. which was very uh, disconcerting to me because it seemed to me that this would really undercut the strength of this evidence of Alma in the Book of Mormon, if that were true. And I contacted Daniel Peterson and I asked him if he'd heard about this and what he thought about it. Well, his response surprised me for about three reasons. Number one, because he was aware of it. Number two, because he justified himself in making the presentation that we just saw in 1995 and in other places. He gives presentations everywhere. This was recorded. He justified himself in making that argument the way he made it by stating that he wasn't saying anything that wasn't true. Okay, double negative. He wasn't saying anything that wasn't true. And third, that he felt that the point was just as strong anyway, even if there were men around Joseph Smith's day and time who were named Alma. Um, at that point, I think we decided we agreed to disagree because this I walked away with two big uh, takeaways from this. Number one, I felt that this really severely undercut the strength of the argument. It wasn't something I was going to be making anymore because if I knew, which I did now, that there were men in Joseph Smith's day named Alma, then that's an obvious other source for the name Alma, which is just as likely, maybe more, but just as likely as him coming up with an ancient authentic Hebrew name, that he puts his name in there from his environment. The second thing that happened was that the status of Daniel C. Peterson, in my eyes, which had been very high up to that point, diminished somewhat because I felt like he was not being totally upfront and honest in his presentations to no evidence and facts that undercut his presentation, but intentionally 
not mentioning those to his audience in order to make his position seem stronger than it was and that he knew it was. Your thoughts about this, Bill? Yeah, if so, my concern would be, as you're pointing out, which is that Dan Peterson and lots of other apologists, and we'll show a few more clips here in just a moment, lots of other apologists would also trump this argument out. And, and I've heard this evidence, which really is, it really is kind of turned around, and we'll talk about this later, but it really is kind of turned in a way that really isn't appropriate to, it is not appropriate to use it as. And they tout it out there as evidence of the church being true. And it's not just something that was done back in this 1995 clip that we just watched. It's much more modern use of this argument and current materials on apologetic sites. And it, it, once we show through, and, you know, as you talk about, and as I talk about throughout this episode, as we show that this really isn't an appropriate way to form this argument, there are lots of fallacies being used. My hope is going forward that within apologetics, that apologists will start to be more honest, especially as folks like you and me hold them accountable. And so I just want to say like, this is such a small issue, but it's representative of a hundred other issues. And when you see the games that are being played here, you can start to apply that kind of understanding to other things going on in apologetics within Mormonism and religion at large, by the way. Right. So I went to all that length to try and date this as best I can to prior to 2007, because in 2008, Daniel C. Peterson was presenting at BYU at the um, Education Week. And as part of his presentation, he says the following, and we have the clip for that, too. This is, yeah. this is much shorter. By the yeah, way. here we go. Two male characters named Alma appear in the Book of Mormon. And of course, this seems to run counter to what we might have expected. If Joseph Smith knew the name at all from his environment, he would likely have known it as a Latin woman's name. Many will recognize the phrase alma mater that means beneficent. Would likely. Recent documentary finds demonstrate, however, that alma also occurs as a Semitic masculine personal name in the ancient Near East, just as it does in the Book of Mormon. That's how quick it was. That's how quick it was. So notice once again, he says about Joseph Smith, if he ever heard the name, he would have heard it as a female name. Once again, he couldn't have known any Almas who were men in his community or in his society or in his time period. So once again, he's using that. And once again, he's avoiding mentioning uh, the fact that this is from a document that dates to the second century CE. Go ahead, Bill. Um, oh, I wasn't raising my hand, but I, I will say, you know, as you reached out to these guys, you know, here you are, you're, you're not recognized at that point. You're just a guy who's very deeply interested in Mormonism. You're studying it. You're coming across this stuff. You reach out to Dan Peterson and you say, Hey, uh, you know, what's going on here? Right. And we're, and you, and, and you and I have talked numerous times about this conversation that you've had. It just bothers me that once the record has been straightened out, once the apologists have the data in front of them. So many times the response that the apologists give continues to be used, even though it doesn't hold up anymore. And it was just interesting here. Here we are 2008 with Daniel Peterson. And you thought the year on the first one was 1995. It was, I looked it yeah. up. Okay. And so here's 2008. Um, and they're still saying it. And you and I were talking this morning. You don't know exactly what year it was you had this conversation. No, but pretty sure because I did the research that I sent you. Pretty sure yeah, it must have been yeah. before 2007. Yeah. 
So here is Dan saying it again. And notice he says likely. Joseph Smith would have likely only understood Alma as a, as a female name. Um, again, when we choose our words carefully and recognize that this person talking is trying to manipulate the audience into seeing something as evidence when it's really a big nothing burger. And we'll get into why that is. But it does strike me that here we are, 2008, after there's been corrections made to this man, and, and he's still saying the same argument. Right. Now, this next clip comes from 2018. And in order to set this up, this is from a fair Mormon video. This isn't Dan Peterson. We're not going to pick on him all night. We'll pick on some other people. But let me just say this, that if Joseph Smith picked a name from men he knew in his community or a man, Alma, puts it in the Book of Mormon, and he only does it once, that would be kind of odd. But it appears that that may have happened more than once because there are other names in the Book of Mormon that really appear to have come uh, or could have come from early 19th century America. And the classic examples of that are Sam, who is mentioned as Sam, not Samuel, but Sam. And then there's another person that you don't even hardly know in the Book of Mormon because he doesn't get a lot of play. He's just mentioned in a list, list I think. Josh. Okay. Yeah. So there's Sam, there's Josh. Not Joshua, but Josh. Uh, and so what's going to happen in this clip? This is from 2018. So this is two years ago. I think you'll recognize the presenter, but he's going to try and do a trifecta. What? No, he's go, gonna, ahead. go ahead. He's going to try and do a trifecta here and get rid of all three of those in one fell swoop. The, um, the, uh, Alma, the Josh and the Sam. And this is very short too. Here we go. Fortunately, several categories of evidence provide additional confirmation that its names are authentic. For example, some of its names seem so obviously modern that a competent forger in 1829 probably wouldn't have used them. Early critics mocked the names Sam and Josh because they sounded too American. Likewise, the name Alma has been criticized because although it was commonly seen as a Latin-based female's name in Joseph Smith's day, it's used as a male's name in the Book of Mormon. Subsequent discoveries, however, have upended these criticisms. Sam and Josh happen to be Semitic names found on artifacts that date close to Lehi's day. They are short names for Samuel and Joshua. Likewise, Alma is attested as a Semitic male's name from both before and after Lehi left Jerusalem. The fact that some people have thought these names were obviously fake makes their authenticity all the more significant. Another line of Thank you for playing that. So yeah. You see how they want to take care of all three of those. I'm not. We, we're not going to go into Josh and Sam at, at this present time. But I wanted to put that up there to show that Alma is still being used. 2018 is the date of that video. And also, once again, notice this connection that the allegation is made that critics deride the name Alma because it's a Latin-based women's name. Every yeah. time that uh, Daniel Peterson has written or talked about it, I have failed to see any kind of a source note to that. And I'm not sure that I've ever encountered it. Now, there will be one uh, one comment, one, criti one criticism about this that will be quoted later. But it won't be because it's a Latin-based female name. So once again, I think this is the, the aspect of uh, the Ouija board argument. Let's just call it the Ouija board argument now. Yeah. And I again, I'll, I'll just mention this. I've never heard. I mean, I've been reading anti-Mormon and faithful apologetics since 1996. And in that time, other than apologists pointing it out, I've never heard any criticism about the name Sam or Josh either. It, it just seems like a strange thing. Like, like we're building 
this these clips or this audio or these material on Fair Mormon, as we'll get to later, around these small issues that really aren't they even for the ex-Mormon or the person who has deep questions and doubts about the church, this is never gonna be the issue that anybody leaves over. Right. But there's so many criticisms of the church, whether made at one time, made, you know, 200 years ago and not since or whatever, that you can spend all your time. If you're very careful, you can spend all your time responding to these minor points with and ignoring the elephant in the living room because you never have time to get to that. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. So do you have this article by Terrence Sink? Is that the next thing that's up? Yeah. So we can uh, we can put that up for people. Uh, let me see if I can make it a little bigger and make it take up a little more of the screen for folks. That would be great. This is a relatively brief article. It's from the year 2000. It was published. Where was it published again? Was that Farms at the time or was it? Uh, BYU point? Religious Studies is okay. where it's posted. Looks like maybe it was in the Religious Educator, Volume 1, Number 1, Year 2000. Okay. Are you able to? Okay. That's probably about as big as you can make it. So you yeah. see that it's really a very short article. Basically, what Terrence Zink is doing is he's documenting the fact that Alma has been found again. All right. But this time it's not in the second century CE. It's basically in the third millennia BCE. Gotcha. Yeah. So this is uh, at Ebla and on tablets. And they found things that they think are LM or LMH. Once again, I'm using my cursor on it, which you can't see in the audience. Sorry about that. But he wants to document this, that we've got Alma being used 20. Well, let's see. Alma is shows up in the Book of Mormon at around 179 BCE. But let's just go to 600 BCE because that's when they leave, all right? That's their last contact with the Hebrew culture. Other than that, they're completely alone and separated from the Hebrew culture. So they've got one from 700 years after it, and now they can add one that is, let's see, uh, 2200 minus 600 would be 1600 years before it. So this name is attested 1600 years before uh, they left Jerusalem in the Book of Mormon. So, so we they, have Alma a long time before Lehi left Jerusalem, and we have Alma somewhat of a long time after Lehi left Jerusalem. And frankly, you know, I'm not an expert in ancient history, and somebody can correct me on this, but I think this is a long time before the Hebrews even existed as a society. This would be proto- uh, Semitic, I would think, but it's important that we document it. Okay. And the one reason I wanted to bring this up was not only because of that, but also because of some other things that he says here in the last paragraph right there. Okay. Because Terrence Zink indicates that the strength of this argument about Alma being an ancient name is really hinged primarily on the fact that Joseph wouldn't have known anybody named Alma, any man named Alma in his community. He says, of course, can you read this? Uh, sure, I can read it. Yeah. Uh, of course, the occurrence of the name Alma in sources outside of the Book of Mormon does not necessarily prove that the book is true, especially since the time separating the text in which the name is found is very great. Thank in other you words, for that admission. Go ahead. Yeah, and it would be like it would be like if we had a name today that was uh, relatively new, and I, and I don't know, maybe somebody can put a comment out really quick and come up with a name. But let's just Georgino. You know, let's say Georgino starts to be used today. It doesn't mean that we can go back just because it's used today. doesn't mean we can go back 200 years and say Georgino even existed as a name for a human being. New names for human beings are being created all the time. And, and so we really have to recognize, again, I, I think this is good enough 
for the apologist to at least be on the defensive and and put some end to this criticism that really doesn't exist. But it should be noted that we don't find Alma anything relative to the time Lehi left Jerusalem. It is significantly before and significantly after, and we we don't have any evidence if the name existed during that time. Although I'm willing, as, as we go through this conversation, I'm willing to grant that Alma existed as a name during this time. It just should be noted that the apologists try to make it sound like it's at the same time, and it really isn't. Right. And certain names have more staying power. For example, we'll get to a little bit of documentation about the fact that Alma was a man's name in Joseph Smith's. Which is the big place. Yeah. Yeah. But I would have had no idea that that was the case. We're only 200 years from that time period. I would have never, ever had any idea that Alma was a name and even a somewhat popular name for men 200 years ago in America. Would you? No, no. Only because of this argument by the church. I would have never even thought of it. No. If apologists hadn't told me that some critics say this and here's their response, I wouldn't have even known one way or the other what Alma's name was. I would have assumed it was a male name since it's in the Book of Mormon. Right. And my point being is that some names have staying power. Other names come in and out yeah. of usage. And Alma, 200 years ago, went out of usage to the point that I don't know anybody who's ever heard of a guy named Alma. Minus Mormons. And I'm sure Minus there's a Mormon. Mormon or two named Alma. If you take all Mormons out of any data... How many Almas are there in the world today? I don't know. Maybe maybe a few overseas. And again, it's a female kind of overseas name, but maybe. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that we've, uh, oh, I'm sorry. I, Was I there another point off. in this paragraph that you wanted to, to talk about? You know something? Let's just go ahead and leave that because we got a bunch of other stuff to go to. Okay. Now Sounds we come good. to, uh, so we've come up to 2018 with the last Fair Mormon video uh, featuring Kwaku L. And now let's go to 2019. So we're getting closer to the present. Now it's July of 2019. And I told you this story a number of years ago. And I know it kind of rankled you. Every now and then I'll make an observation that just really rankles you. You'll tell me something and I go, there's something to be said here to the general public. And I, yeah. yeah. So you sometimes feed my, um, you feed my ego probably, but you, you, you feed also some of the things I put out there on Facebook and social media. Yeah, one of those things I said that rankled you had to do with Elder Holland fudging the numbers on state creation yeah, that, growth. That led to my excommunication, my friend. I know. And I, I apologize for that. You're responsible. Put that little, I put that bug in your ear and you just yeah. went with it. Well, this yeah. was another one, this story, because it really bothered you that they weren't just coming out and saying, okay, well, there were guys named Alma during Joseph Smith's time. And you were absolutely on your Facebook page in July, the end of July, 2019, you were totally up in Daniel C. Peterson's grill over the issue. And you were giving him such a hard time that he did something that he very rarely does. And that's, he responded. He responded to you. And he did it at his blog at Sick Etnon, dated July 31st, 2019, I believe. It'll be up here in a second. And he titled it, Alma, Deception, and I. So yeah. here's Daniel C. Peterson's response to you. And by the way, we're, uh, I don't know that we want to read through all of this. Um, but let's just skip down for a little bit. He's going to give a few links to other. Is he going to give links to other things first? Is there any way that you can make? Okay. What Maybe, are we looking for? Uh, can you just go up a little bit briefly from there? Okay, here we go. Uh, okay, so he talks about he talks about the Utah Evangel. That's this, uh, I don't know, some kind of a broadside that uh, he has read and argued with the 
evangelical ministers of it. How many people's faith do you think are being affected by the Utah evangel today? Zero. (laughs) But but the thing is, he's just he's just gone over and I just want to summarize it. And if you want to look at it, go ahead and look at it and you can look it up. You've got the name and the title. Um, But he says he's basically saying, actually, go ahead and go up to the next paragraph because he's going to talk about Alma. Okay. He says, by contrast, the name is very rarely given to men. He's talking about Alma. He's just gone over Alma given to women, right? And now he's going to talk about all the people named Alma who also happen to have been Mormons and were obviously named Alma after the Book of Mormon character. So there's no there's nobody who's named Alma who's a man independent of a Mormon context and being named after the prophet Alma in the Book of Mormon. So that's what he says there. And then he goes, uh, but the Utah Evangel wasn't the only anti-Mormon publication to make polemical use of Joseph Smith's absurd mistake of naming two men Alma. Okay, so now he's going to get around. He's finally making his way around to responding to you. So can you read this next paragraph? Yeah. So in numerous public presentations and perhaps elsewhere, I countered with evidence that Alma is, in fact, a demonstrably ancient Semitic masculine personal name. For a summary of the current state of the ancient evidence, see the entry on Alma on the website of the Book of Mormon Omnomasticon Project. Yes. In the public presentation. That's right, that's right next to the Necronomicon on the shelf. Yeah, yeah, I've got those two. The Onomasticon uh, and the Necronomicon. Yeah, I refer to those often. <laughs> Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, no. In public presentations in which I briefly commented on Alma, I regularly indicated that the evidence overwhelmingly shows that having the name affixed to two masculine figures isn't the mistake, let alone the obvious and fatal howler that anti-Mormon polemicists like to ridicule. And I stand by that. The folks at the Utah Evangel were wrong. Their argument fails. The Book of Mormon certainly doesn't look less ancient or less authentic because it features men named Alma. Okay, now he's watering down his argument. If you go back to 1995, he's using this as a bullseye. Joseph Smith shot in the dark, hit the bullseye, and nailed it. This is a very positive and very impressive evidence for the Book of Mormon. Now what he's saying is, all I'm saying is is that now uh, I, I can use it as a defense against this argument that the critics are making over at the Utah Evangel about the name Alma in the Book of Mormon. But now he goes on and he he says, I haven't given such presentations often or at all for quite a number of years now, but transcriptions and recordings of them have received modestly wide distribution. And yes, we played part of one of them tonight. Since that time, though, since that time, though, Bill, I've been told that, in fact, there were some non-Latter-day Saint American men before and during the period of Joseph Smith, who may have borne the name Alma. The com- now, he's not going to say it's true, right? I mean, this is last year. Yeah. This, is, this is 18 months ago. The computerization of genealogical and census materials makes searches for such names far easier than they were even just a few years ago, so that's going to be his fig leaf. I haven't personally investigated this claim since Alma isn't a topic that I address much anymore. You sure as hell won't going forward. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, it's just perhaps, perhaps I'll do it sometime. But my current priorities lie elsewhere. They always do. So in other words, he's got enough time to write this blog and do uh, a myriad of other things. But the one thing he does not have time to do is to research an issue that could and would, and I think he already knows by this point, I mean, this is last year undermine his position on a Book of Mormon evidence. Yeah, and it should be noted, RFM, 
he starts off that paragraph with since that time, since that time that I spoke on this issue long ago in a few small places that, you know, what a couple of these videos might've gotten some moderate publicity. Um, since that time I learned this thing. And the reality is, as you're pointing out, he learned this thing before at least that most recent time that we showed where he's talking. Mm -hmm. And so he's also being dishonest here. He ought to acknowledge that even after being corrected, he continued to promote a, uh, an argument that was uh, not true. Or at least incomplete. At least incomplete. Uh, yeah, at least incomplete. See how charitable I am? Good job. I'm the soul of charity. Look at that. And He's, he, um, so he's not going to do it. He's not going to get around to it. He's certainly not going to research this to find out that it is true. Right now, it's yeah. just an allegation. This is just what some people say. And he's not going to find out that it's real. He's just going to leave it in the category of this is what some people say. This goes to this idea. And I, I experienced this myself as, a, as an apologist, which is there are some things that, if true, are going to undermine my arguments. And therefore, I'm not going to find out whether they're true. I'm just going to sort of ignore them, whistle past the graveyard, and hope they don't come up and bite me in the ass, yeah. which is what's going to happen tonight, as we're showing. <laughs> well, as we're showing in this uh, this presentation. Now, keep going down. Keep going down. It gets better. This gets better. Um, let me know when you got to that point. Uh, let's yeah, see. A little bit about that. I th so we got to sense that time. Yeah, yeah. Then we got the next paragraph, if true. Yep. Is that what you want? Okay, so yeah, if true, though, it would obviously weaken somewhat, although I don't think that it wholly obviates my suggestion that Alma represents minor but genuine evidence for the Book of Mormon's authentic antiquity. Can I stop there for just a second? Oh, please do. So if Joseph Smith uses the name Alma, and Alma is understood by some people that maybe it's just a female name, and, and we learn that it is a male name in his current, Joseph Smith's current day, in his milieu, then it doesn't matter where else we find Alma, it is plausible, reasonable, logical that when you take all the data in hand, that Joseph Smith very well could have gotten Alma from an ancient context, and he could have gotten Alma from a modern day, and we'll learn here soon, possibly even a Palmyra neighborhood. If if that's true, then the issue becomes a wash. Neither side is really evidence of anything anymore. Right, I agree. And notice also how he's downplaying this. If you go back, I'm not asking you to, but you can do it when you're watching this on a rerun, uh, members of the audience. If you go back and you play how he presents this in 1995 with how he's presenting it now, now he's characterizing it as um, a suggestion that Alma represents minor but genuine evidence for the Book of Mormon's authentic antiquity. It's so small now. It's just a tiny little thing. Back in 1995, this was the bullseye that Joseph Smith hit while shooting in the dark. Now it's looking a lot more like maybe a coincidence. Maybe he hit the broadside of a barn with something. Yeah. And it's not looking anywhere near as impressive. So now he's downplaying its significance. And I think that's because he's recognizing the fact that he may have overplayed his hand earlier. So... Uh, he says, uh, oh, go ahead and keep reading from wherever it was you stopped. Yeah, but I would want to know how likely Joseph Smith would have been to know of men named Alma. How common was the name among males in early America? See, he's still playing it like, look, guys, it wasn't used much. And he's suggesting it. He's using words carefully. And the reality is he's also acknowledging, again, he doesn't want to do the work. He's afraid, and I have to believe, he's afraid of what comes out of this. Because as we'll see in a little bit, other people did do the work. Um, and it wasn't that hard to do. But he is using words in a way to tell his readers 
that, come on, guys, like maybe it was used. I don't know. I don't have time to look into it. But how much would it have been used? Not that much. So it's probably not even really a counter argument. The thing that occurs to me right now is that he's also tipping his hand that he actually does know that Alma was used as a man's name in Joseph Smith's time. Because what he wants to know is not whether it was used as a man's name in Joseph right. Smith's time. He wants to know how come? Uh, how, how likely would Joseph Smith have been to know of men named Alma? Yeah. Not whether they existed, right? Yeah. So I think I think we're seeing his true colors here. How common he, was the name? Well, he's yeah. assuming he, the name existed, so he already knows it, apparently, and et cetera. And he finishes off here. Did certain regions favor it more than others? If so, where? In places with which Joseph Smith was familiar? Question mark. If you are honestly interested, as he obviously is, in whether Alma is an actual evidence for the Book of Mormon, why are you not doing that research yourself? Daniel Peterson. Yeah, he's done so much research on things. And so have all other apologists when it comes to evidences, right? We've chased yeah. down Nahum. We've we've gone everywhere to do everything that we possibly could as an evidence. But when anything comes out that is a critical piece of data that goes against the truth claims of the church, everybody pretends they're too lazy to look into anything. Yep. And now I want you to read this next paragraph and read it with emotion because he finally gets to you. Okay. Is this the, I, I address this. Okay. Yes. I address this topic because I'm sorry. I address this topic now because somebody challenged me yesterday on the matter. Somebody named Bill Real, by the way. Accusing me of lying. A deliberate deceit because in the presentations that I used to make in which I would devote perhaps a minute or two to the name of Elma. Now, you know, he watched those and looked and see how long he talked about it. He didn't just guess. Um, A minute or two to the name of Alma, I failed to mention the fact, again, I'm assuming it to be true, that at least a few early American men bore that name. I wasn't, of course, seeking to deceive anybody. I was speaking honestly as I routinely do. He routinely speaks honestly. Yeah, but not always, apparently. No, on the basis of the information (laughs) that I had at the time. And in any event, much of my argument remains quite unaffected. And as we'll show throughout the night, there is no argument. The evidence just a wash. This is a nothing burger. Nobody's criticizing the church this way. Nobody's leaving the church over this. And anything the apologists do doesn't add anything that makes evidence that the church is true. Right. And I think, as you put it in our prior discussion, that really nobody, no critic of the church should be using this, assuming how much they ever did, which was very little, if at all, using Alma as a woman's name, as a criticism of the Book of Mormon, because we know about, um, you know, the Bar Kokhba document. Right. On the other hand, apologists really shouldn't be using this as an evidence for the Book of Mormon, because we know about all the guys named Alma in Joseph Smith's day. It is a wash, I think. Um, now, can you go down to the comment section? Don't leave that yet. Yeah, yeah. I'm getting to put it up right now as we're talking. So that's where it really gets funny. The first guy, the very first comment, it's like he was waiting. I don't know who this Dr. Detroit is. I love Dr. Detroit. Dr. Detroit, I'm a big fan of you. But immediately he says, are, as you probably, I think, are aware of what that's supposed to be. Uh, he talks about Mormon apologist Mike Reed. And he goes on and he, t- he lists 48 names of men named Alma. In the United States in the 19th century, you see that. Yeah, look all at these that. names. Look at those. And so Daniel Peterson goes ahead, and you can find all those in, in more detail and look at them closer on the actual blog post, assuming it's not uh, deleted. Shortly in fact, after I'll, the I'll share program. the link here with everybody in the comments so they can they can go check out this blog post. Okay, now notice what Daniel Peterson's response is. Okay, he says, "I wasn't aware, and I certainly wasn't aware in the early 1990s." Of course, 
Now he's going to try and push away. This is something about this human human thing that we have about not wanting to accept evidence that's right in front of our face that undermines our position. Uh, of hold course, on. Didn't he speak in 2008 on this? Oh, yeah, he did. That's right. So hold on a minute. He says, I certainly wasn't aware in the early 1990s. Um, again, you mentioned this several episodes ago in, in one of our conversations that the apologists are always trying to create as much distance between the thing they did, the thing they said, the lie they told, the deception they put across, and 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 now when you're correcting it. And the reality is it wasn't the 1990s, Dan. It was 2008 after you had been corrected. You're right. And I did look up all the time he's written on it in his different articles and newspaper pieces. But, uh, of course, Alabama and Indiana and Maine and Missouri and Wisconsin and North Carolina, so he goes and picks cherry picks a few of these, uh, can only be very, very loosely described as being in Joseph Smith's, what's that say, area in the 1820s. And one would want to know who, what percentage of males bore. Does that it matter name? what percentage? What percentage of males bore the name Alma in ancient Egypt? Like, like, what does it matter what percentage it is? If there's one guy in his community, then that's sufficient. All he has to do is know one of his neighbors um, and that's sufficient enough to crack this this other side of the coin, which is the evidence they want to present of it being an ancient male name. Well, he's gone through these 47. And so Daniel Peterson is going to cherry pick the ones that are way away from Joseph Smith. Yeah. And now keep going down if you can. Oh, yeah. Because Dr. Detroit is up to the challenge. And what does he say there? Let me find it here. No, here hold, we go. Um, you want to you hear what he has to say first? Let me think here. Um, yeah, he says, I spent the last 15 minutes. In other words, that's how long it took him, right? on familysearch.org, oh, the irony, and have found six more men named Alma in various New York counties, three more men named Alma in Vermont, and two more in Pennsylvania. All places that Joseph Smith tarried. Right. And so if you'll go down a little bit more, because a little bit of time is passing, and Kiwi, Kiwi 57. Notice, notice Dan, though, in his response. Whatever what? numbers you might find, though, your findings would seem to leave my position pretty much untouched. Right. Like we never accept the accountability that our argument has been deflated and had holes poked all the way through it. Very good point. Now, Kiwi uh, 57, who is like uh, the winged monkey to Daniel Peterson's <laughs> Wicked Witch of the West, he comes in to defend Daniel Peterson's honor and provide helpful distractions with irrelevant arguments. Yes, I'm talking to you, Kiwi 57, and I know who you are. So if you go down here, you just go down a little bit more because Dr. Detroit actually here, here. Here, here's what he finds. Can you read that? Here are so, a few yeah. men in the Smith fam that the Smith family could have easily known. And he lists five men named Alma who were born in the 1820s in Palmyra, New York. By the way, one is 1807. Joseph Smith was born in what, 1805? Yes. So this would have been a person almost the same age as him in his town. Is there any chance he might have known Alma Wilson, born in 1807 in Palmyra, New York? Look at the one below that. Alma know. Warren, 1806. Palmyra is a big, bustling There's metropolis. no way Joseph could have known these two, these two fellow school children before he dropped out of school. The odds of them bumping into each other are astronomical, Bill. <laughs> uh, prob yeah, I don't think so. And then, and then he actually adds a sixth one down here where he says, here's a real interesting one. Who's Alma Fuller? Yeah, Alma Fuller. And he says he's really interesting because he was born in 1816 in Palmyra, New York. Notice this is the sixth guy he's come up with in a matter of minutes doing uh, research on the internet. 
but he died in it was 1880 in Providence, Utah. Hmm. And so he's thinking, I wonder if this guy converted to Mormonism. And because he's born in 1816, he's named Alma before Mormonism exists. Yes. But he goes out west to Utah. Yes. So this guy, Dr. Detroit, comes up with six, no less than six men, boys at the time, named Alma in Palmyra, New York in the 1820s. Yeah. So, no, it wasn't just Indiana or Missouri. It was actually in Joseph Smith's hometown, his home village. Now, hold on. Now. Uh, does Dan jump back in and address any of that? I think I don't he, think so. I think he doesn't. He sort of, I think he so, does. He sort of disappear. He does. So this guy names seven people in Palmyra, New York, with one of them being named Alma before Mormonism existed, and going to Utah with the Saints most likely. I don't yeah. have any other reason why he would have ended up in Utah in eighteen eighty. And then Dan is gone. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to really disappear that. entirely. He does. You have to go that. all the way down to where the thread starts up again with another comment. It's yeah. not in that conversation. I just thought that's interesting. And as I'm going here, there's Dan. About something um, else? Oh, but, now they're going to make fun about Dr. Detroit not being a real doctor. Well, this yeah. is how we're going to respond to the fact that he came up with six, not seven, <laughs> but six men named uh, Alma in Palmyra in the 1820s that were born in the 1820s. How do we respond? We duck out. Daniel C. Peterson has left the building on that part of the thread, and he comes back in to make fun of Dr. Detroit because he's not a real doctor. Yeah. And thank you for, for stating six, not seven. We always want to point to the facts. We always want to be truthful. We always want to do this the honest way. We do our best. So that is what happened on July 31st of 2019 when Daniel C. Peterson sought to defend his honor and say, I am not a crook. Yeah. But, but it gets even better now because the following week, it was like uh, August 6th and 7th. It could have been 6th through 8th of 2019. Guess who, was, <laughs> what? Guess who was having their conference, their annual yeah. conference in Utah? Who would it's that the, be? The Fair Mormon Conference. The Fair Mormon Conference coincidentally happens the following week. And who should present at the Fair Mormon Conference? But Ooh. General Authority, Tad McAllister. Sorry, Tad Callister. Tad right. R. Callister. It's always and important actually, those initials. And actually, it's Callister. Callister. Look at that. Yeah, so don't be mispronouncing his name. Not to be confused with colander, which is a thing the Pastafarians wear. <laughs> I thought it was something you strained spaghetti in. Anyway, anyway, he speaks, and he's going to speak about the case for the Book of Mormon because this is what Tad Collister loves to talk about. He was a general authority. He was the, uh, he was a member of the 70 and then a uh, the president of the General Relief Society. And I think he got released in April 2019 because he hit that 70-year-old age, so he got put on emeritus status. But that is the quality and caliber of person. This is not just a rank-and-file apologist. This is a guy who's a general authority in the LDS Church. And he's going to come in. He's going to talk about uh, the Book of Mormon. He's going to talk about the case for the Book of Mormon. And guess what he's going to mention as one of his proofs for the Book of Mormon? If you guess the name Alma, you go to the head of the class. Yeah, and I've got to find it here. Let's see. Let me put a thing up on the screen. Yeah, because we're going to put the transcript. The transcript is available at Fair Mormon. That's where we got it from. And also the audio. And so we got the audio clip to play along with this um, transcript. It's not that long, but it's very, very interesting for a number of reasons. One of which, well, we'll get to it and then we'll talk about it. Okay, I will play it. And I'm going to put it down below a little bit so that we can see the, the words... Uh, up as well. So there's the talk. Here's my Audacity program open. Let's see if this makes some sound and we can hear this. Okay. Alleged striking clock number three. 
Alma as a man's name. For many years, critics claim to have found another ticking clock. The Book of Mormon refers to two male prophets by the name of Alma. Alma was considered, as you know, a female Latin and Hebrew name, not a male name. In fact, one critic sarcastically wrote, quote, Alma is supposed to be a prophet of God and of Jewish ancestry in the Book of Mormon. In Hebrew, Alma means a betrothed virgin maiden, hardly a fitting name for a man. But the day of truth came. In 1961, a deed was found in Jerusalem dating to the early 2nd century A.D. At least it gives the date. deed was signed by Alma ben Yehuda, which means in Hebrew, Alma, the son of Judah. Joseph was either inspired once again or a very, very lucky guesser. Some critics now claim that the earlier critics were wrong, that Alma's name did exist as a male name at the time of Joseph Smith. But in either case, they have confirmed that the Book of Mormon revealed a correct usage of the name of Alma. He makes, he makes, uh, he says things here that contradict each other. And I'll be honest, this kind of pissed me off a little bit. You and I were talking this morning. I'm a little pissed at how manipulative uh, this is. Save project. No, here we go. We'll get rid Whatever of that. do you mean by manipulative, Bill Real? So look at the way he words this. Okay, first off, but the day of truth came in 1961. This deed is found. And he says, Joseph was either inspired once again or a very, very lucky guesser. Now he says that. Now that would be fine if he didn't know the truth which is that there is uh, the use of Alma as a male name in Joseph's milieu uh, it you know, in Joseph's contemporary context and time. So he is saying, on one hand, Joseph only could have been inspired or a lucky guesser. And then he says, some critics now claim that the earlier critics were wrong, that Alma's name did exist as a male, but then he goes, that doesn't really matter. So he he lines up his argument that Joseph Smith's inspired or lucky. Then he admits that he could be not inspired and not lucky, but just using a male name from his area. And then he does it with this, and, and that whole Mormon voice. And Joseph Smith was so inspired. Like Mormon leaders talk in this thing. It's almost like they get lessons on how to use elevation emotion to uh, build spiritual or something similar to spiritual experiences in people. So he then goes on and says, some people, some critics now claim, all he has to do is admit the truth, which is Joseph Smith's use of the name Alma is not necessarily ancient, that there are males in Joseph's contemporary context that have the name Alma, and it doesn't matter if only one critic knows that or if 10 critics know it. The facts are the facts. And when he talks this way, he's being dishonest, he's being deceptive, and he is using words in a way that manipulates his audience into understanding his argument a certain way. If you and I read this 20 years ago, we would have felt that the argument was much stronger and was evidence of the church's truth claims when really it's nothing. Right. And I think that one of the problems that he has, first off, let me just comment here. They must have scoured the stacks to come up with this quote because they actually came up with a quote uh, and it's footnoted as number six. This is from 1978. It's Walter Martin's Maze of Mormonism. 
Oh, you got it right there. I looked it up and found it was 1978. So page 327. But they get this one little quote out of a, a massive book. I mean, this is page 327 in the book. It's all about Mormonism and that's all they've got. And there's nothing in there about it being a Latin woman's name. Yeah. You see, there's yeah. nothing about it being a Latin woman's name. He spends a little bit of time just talking about how, how uh, funny it is that this would be a Hebrew woman's name, which apparently it is. But he never he never mentions this Latin woman's name, which is what I've heard uh, Daniel Peterson and others go on and on about. And I feel that Daniel Peterson goes on about it, and then Terrence Zink went on about it. And I kind of think that Terrence Zink is just buying. And Quaku, Quaku went on about it. Did he say that too? They always Quaku said Latin that, too. That third video we showed was Quaku's voice. Yeah, I think it all starts with um, Daniel Peterson talking about it, and then everybody just believes him that that's what's going on. But I've got a feeling that if they had one, I mean, I know if I were making this talk. And putting it together, if I would had one that's talked about a Latin woman's name, I would have put it there. But this is the only one they can come up with. It's from 1978, and it's about Hebrew. Okay, now getting back to the next, the second paragraph, this is what's so funny to me because I think Tad Callister, Callister, Tad, went too far because if he had left out the part about now, some critics talk about how uh, it was really uh, a man's name in Joseph Smith's day. Yeah, just say it. Don't hide behind it. Don't try and poison the waterhole and say, oh, this is just what critics say. Just admit the truth because you know what the truth is. And this is where he tips his hand. There's a lot of hand tipping going on in this episode. But what he does is if he had just given the regular straight up argument the way that Daniel C. Peterson did back in 1995 or again in 2008, we would be left here wondering, well, maybe he doesn't know. You know, maybe he just doesn't know that Alma was a man's name and Joseph Smith's day. People Maybe are allowed to be, know. people are allowed to be naive to information. Right. And the problem is he tells us that he does know because he has to add today. Some critics say that Alma was a man's name in Joseph Smith. He knows it. He knows that that's the case. Otherwise he wouldn't be able to say that. And now he's sitting there and he's, I think he's got egg on his face because he knows that it's the case. He's not admitting it's the case but he's trying to insinuate that it's not really the case. It's just what some critics are saying today. It's this idea that, I mean, this is what got me out of apologetics was the desire to find out what the truth was. Instead of to always be twisting information, shading arguments in order to try and win the argument at the expense of what the real truth was. And that's what I see him doing there. Now, uh, did you have any other comments about Tad Collister? Because we've got one final I think one final graphic. I, I only want to emphasize one more time. When you say it's either inspiration or it's a lucky guess, and then your next sentence says there's a third option, you have just lied to your audience. There were three options. It was maybe inspiration. It was maybe a lucky guess. And with my next sentence, I'm also acknowledging that Joseph could have got it from his current culture and milieu. Ah, very good. Very good. Okay. That's it for me. Okay, so we're going to bring this right up to the present. We're going to bring this right up to today because today I went onto the Fair Mormon website and I looked up an article that they have about the name Alma as an evidence for the Book of Mormon. I don't know if you have that as an image. Do oh, you? look at that. I You're just happen to have it sitting here. You're incredible. Unlike yeah. the front side of the papers that they use on This Is The Show, which are blank, we come prepared. Well, you were, I just sent this to you just briefly uh, ago, and so I'm amazed at your abilities. But we're not going to read through this. What you're going to find out, if you want to go and look at this, this is access today. You're accessing it in real time, aren't you? Yeah, this is, this is, I can refresh it. Let's do this. Let's refresh it. 
Let's see oh, if it's look at that. There it is. Okay, so what this does is it assembles different articles and statements made by different LDS scholars about Alma as a name in the, the Book of Mormon as an evidence. And they they have Bar Kokhba several times. They've got the Ebla tablets several times. And even in this article, Fair Mormon accessed today, in spite of the history that we've talked about, guess what does not appear once in this article? Tell us. You can't guess? Well, I was trying to pull the, one of the comments <laughs> up, so I, was, I wasn't listening. I'm sorry. No, I read through it. I said, are they ever going to get around to talking about the fact that Alma was a man's name in Joseph Smith's state? No. They don't share any of that evidence. No. Not no. a troll. Not why, not? Why, why wouldn't you tell your audience or your listenership or your viewers, why wouldn't you tell them the full story, RFM? Because you want them to believe that it is a stronger evidence than it actually is. Yeah. And by the way, there's a comment here I think that we should bring up. Joshua yeah. Snyder, who I know personally, him and I both were in the same ward in Ohio hmm. at different times. So I don't personally, I've never met him, but I know him and, and we have common friends. Uh, the town of Alma was founded in upstate New York in 1832 and was named after a man, must have copied the Book of Mormon, right? So at least acknowledge, and I don't know this for a fact, by the way, I would want to do my research and I will, by the way, when the episode's over, I would want to look this up. And Josh, if you could... If you see a source for this somewhere online, if you put it in the comments, I'll try to see that and put it up as well. I've but got it here. If there's a town called Alma in upstate New York named after a male, that is pretty damn significant. Well, apparently there is because I was typing as you were talking. Alma is a rough hilly town on the south border of the county surrounded on the north, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, apparently that is the case, and it is to 1832. So it does look like that matches the information I'm accessing on the Internet. Yeah, I'm curious. I would love – I'm trying to pull a map up. Um, go ahead and, and run us through the next thing. But in the meantime, I'm going to try to find how close that is to Palmyra. Yeah, you can put Alma, New York, and look it up on Wikipedia as well, and that will probably synopsize it pretty well. Yeah. So that's interesting. Very, very good comment. I did not know that. You notice how post-Mormons or nuanced Mormons are much better at research and getting to the point and getting to the facts than I think most apologists are. Yeah. It says the area was first settled around 1833. It was not incorporated until 1854, but of course that means when it reaches. <clears throat> but whoever that town's named after would have been there, right? It's named after somebody. So you have an Alma that's in that area in that 1830 time period. The town gets its actual name just after the Book of Mormon's published. So maybe not strong evidence, but whoever that guy is, the town's named after. Now that that also seems very important. Yeah. And I'm not seeing that in here. I would say it's very unlikely that the name Alma for this township would, in 1832, be named after a character in the Book of Mormon that just came off the press two years before. Yeah. And I'll also note, it is a two-hour and 11-minute drive from Alma, New York to Palmyra, New York into Rochester area. Um, so maybe not evidence at all. And I wouldn't want to start going around giving presentations using it. Yeah, it's right on the border of Pennsylvania and New York. Notice you and I will probably never repeat that fact again as evidence that the church is not true. Oh, heavens no. Yeah. No, but it's very, very interesting. And what it does is it helps us to understand that Alma is not, unfortunately, the bullseye shot in the dark by Joseph Smith that I was led to believe originally. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I think that catches us up to date. Did you have anything else you want to say about that, or did you want to open up the lines? No, let me put our banner up and give people the telephone number. 
Um, by the way, there was a little fact here that you and I have known for a long time, which is that Dan Peterson, just a fact, I'm not, I'm not trying to make fun of Dan or anything like that. Dan is often referred to in critical circles as taper Dan. I've called him that before because uh, it's a joke. It's kind of a funny thing that in Mormonism we've claimed before as a faithful response that um, horses, which are mentioned in the Book of Mormon, there's very little to zero evidence of ancient horses during the same time period as when they're mentioned in the Book of Mormon. And it has been suggested by apologists that maybe it wasn't a horse, actually, just some other animal, and Joseph was connecting. And it always points to this other problem in Mormonism, which is sometimes you need a tight translation for this to work. Sometimes you need a loose translation. Nephi has to be an actual name. Nahum has to be an actual name. But Joseph can't come up with a name for the animal that he's talking about. That has to be certain instances, like Euroms and Cumans. Right. Um, and so somebody in Mormonism suggested that maybe it was tapers, which is a animal common to the area in Central America, South America, where the map for the Book of Mormon is proposed. Uh, and so many people have called Dan Peterson taper Dan for that idea. In reality, it was John Sorensen, as you pointed out in our conversation this morning, that was responsible for first suggesting that idea. That is my understanding. Uh, and I think that Dan Peterson, along with numerous other apologists, have probably echoed it. But I think it was John Sorensen who came up with that idea in his 1985 publication, An Ancient American Setting for the Book of Mormon. Yeah. And so, callers, if you'd like to give us a call, the number there is at the bottom, 435-200-3478, We'll see if a call comes in. You know, when you, you have Dan li- either lying or or maybe misstating the idea that you know, I was corrected, and then after I was corrected, I never mentioned it again. And he could be mistaken, but either way, it should be noted that after being corrected, he still shared false information. Yeah. It should be noted that Kwaku in the third video we showed in Fair Mormon still chooses to put up a deceptive uh, way of posing this issue so that it builds faith in the believers and it neglects to tell the believers the other side of the coin, which is important information that takes this evidence completely off the table and just makes it a wash. So the critic has no standing and the apologist has no standing. There's no strength of argument really on either side. It's just a nothing. Right. And, and what? And, and, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I'm just going to say, and then you've got essentially Fair Mormon on their website currently still posing this idea, not talking about it fully. Uh, you have Tad Callister, a general authority of the church manipulating his audience and flat out lying in his statement. And this is the smallest of issues. So LDS church and apologist, how much do you think those two groups are lying to you on the big things? Yeah. There's an old saying in the law about if you lie about little things, you'll lie about big things. Right. If you're lying about little things, you're sure as hell going to lie about big things. Yeah. And I can't remember what it was I was going to say. So do you have a, do you have a phone call? Uh, I do, RFM. I've got our first caller. It's Randy. And I don't know if this is the Randy who talked to us last week, but uh, Randy, what do you got for us? Yeah, no, I'm, uh, no this is the first time I've called you guys. Great. I, I have a very specific question. I'd love to hear both of you guys take on it, but you got to give me just a quick second. Sure, just a no problem. Quick Please. gush thing. You guys, um, uh, you, both of you, have helped me dramatically personally with my own faith transition. I've been out a couple years, and I just can't tell you how much your work means to me. I'm also a big fan of John Streeter's work. And uh, of course, a lot of the Mormon stories and stuff like that, but uh, Streeter's brilliant. Guys, by the way. Huh? Streeter is brilliant, by the way. Oh yeah. yeah. He, he, he is. He is. Yeah, so, so are you, sir. And so is RFM. But I just want to tell you sincerely, you guys are knocking it dead. And I told Streeter this one time, I believe that what you're doing now 
will find its way in the future somehow when we're old and gone or whatever. It may not be on YouTube anymore, but our podcast, but I think some of this is going to live and I think it's going to help people in the future too. I really do. Perfect. Anyway, here, here's something. Thank I you, Randy. Love to hear your uh, take on this guy's uh, comments. Just something I have personally wondered many times. Uh, these, and here it is, these apologists, you know, the different apologists and um, also the general authorities. Uh, I, uh, from what I understand, uh, that sometimes general authorities get in there and they, they really on board and they don't know, you know, the full truth and they, they figure it out and then they're, they're trapped. So my question is, do you, can you, do you think any of these guys just in your heart of hearts has that man in the mirror moment where they're looking in the mirror that go, this is such bullshit. Oh, I just can't, uh, you know, I got really, I've got to pitch this Alba thing again or, or whatever, you know, whatever the thing is. Are, are there a general authority that going, oh, I've got to give this talk and I've got to do this. And I, but I, they know in their hearts, you know what I mean? They're looking at their souls in the mirror and they're maybe they're trapped or everybody's dependent on them and their kids getting college free or whatever. But, you know, the man in the mirror moment, that's what I'd love to hear you guys talk about, because I know that most of these people are just wonderful, good people inside. You know, they're just good people. And, and, they're, and when they find out the truth, it's a really causes quite a dilemma. It did for me. Yeah. But uh, anyway, that's my question, and I love you guys, and uh, you guys carry on, carry on. Thank you, Randy. Thank you very much. So uh, he's asking, essentially, do these guys know they're lying? And in Tad Callister's point, he has to understand his argument is full is full of a fallacy that just causes the whole thing not to hold up. Uh, Dan Peterson has to know, and maybe he didn't, maybe he has you know early stages of dementia, but he has to know that he was corrected and then goes out later and talks about it again. Um, Quaku and Fair Mormon have no excuse at this point. This data has been mentioned in multiple places, so you'd have to flat out just ignore it to pretend to be ignorant or naive to it at this point, and Fair Mormon especially. There's hundreds of people there behind the scenes. All it takes is one of them to go, hey, we need to update our website and acknowledge fully that there are multiple people in the Palmyra, New York area with the male name Alma, and hence the arguments weak on both sides as a criticism and as an evidence of the church's truth claims. Um, do people know RFM? I think you and I, at some point, we started to understand that we were stretching the truth in trying to give Mormonism a faithful light. And within a short time, that wears you out and you realize you're on the wrong side and you really just want to be honest to the data. And so you, you stop being tolerant of yourself whitewashing of yourself emphasizing certain parts, right? Or not answering certain questions or changing the question. Those mechanisms get old and you one day wake up and look in the mirror, you and me, and go like, I don't want to do this apologetic thing anymore. I just want to talk about the issues as they are and let the, let, the, let it fall where it may. Um, so I think some of these guys know. I don't think they can not know. Uh, your thoughts? Well, I think that you're right. And of course, when you're talking about what people believe or their yeah, internal, guessing. yeah, it's, it's a lawyer in you is always correcting me on that point, on that point all the time. You're always telling me, we, we don't know that for sure. I always <laughs> take the logical leap and you always say like, I want to stop with the facts. Yeah. Well, and you, and you certainly may be right. I think you're very intuitive and, uh, as an individual, um, but let me just say this, uh, first off, this comes from the best of motives. All right. Because we know that the church is true, whether you're an apologist or a leader of the church, you know, the church is true. And therefore, whatever is necessary for you to say or do that either helps people join the church 
or keep people from leaving the church is by its very definition, the best thing that you can do. And it doesn't make any difference if you have to shade things, if you have to omit things, if you even have to lie. And that's that's kind of rare because I think they don't really like to lie. Uh, they like well, to try one guy. He's got some jowls. I don't he he likes to lie. But, uh, you know, he's done it on multiple occasions. Um, uh, OK, OK. Yeah, I don't want to go down the wrong road here, RFM. So I know you're going to get <laughs> me in trouble. You're going to get me in trouble now. Um, but it's it's possible to get carried away. And maybe uh, Elder Holland gets carried away or has the gift of the Blarney more than other apostles. But the, the whole idea is this, is that, yeah, uh, you're doing something that isn't technically ethical, but you're doing it for the best reason, so therefore it is ethical. And I also think that psychologically speaking, it is possible for a person, I've certainly experienced it, to know something, and at the very same time, about yourself mm -hmm. and what you're doing, to know something and also to refuse to know that thing. Yeah. That we are able to, we, uh, the human mind has this amazing capacity to rationalize our behavior and justify it and come up with reasons why it's acceptable. And I think Mormonism gives a great opportunity for that. Are there, are there general authorities? I have no idea. All I know is that there are general authorities such as Hans Matson. We'll take him as a case in point, um, who was general authority, who we know lost his testimony of Mormonism. It was certainly very public. And it would probably be naive to think that there are not other general authorities of the same level who have or are currently or will experience the same thing as Hans Monson did. And it's also possible using him as an example to extrapolate that there certainly may be people who are general authorities who are higher up in the chain of command who are or will go through something similar to what Hans Monson went through, even if they keep it to themselves and aren't public about it like Hans was. Yeah, and all of us, when we were believers, we wanted to. Hold on. Give Brother Joseph. A That's break. what we wanted to do. Let me uh, grab this other call. <laughs> Give Brother Joseph a break. Yeah, that was Elder Anderson, I think, right? Uh, yeah, that was Elder Anderson. Yep, absolutely. All right, now Bill is going to briefly screen this caller. And uh, while he's doing, yep. do you already do it? Yeah, we've got it. It's Christy. Who's at this? Christy. Yeah, Christy is on the line. Uh, Christy, what do you have for Mormonism Live, RFM, and I? Okay, so my husband and I are big fans, and we've been talking the last few days about um, what could they do instead of lying? What should they do to move forward in a maybe psychologically mm. healthy way for the members that are still in? What I can answer that question in three words. We propose to marry your daughters. No, I'm sorry. That's a Pirates of Penzance gag. I can answer that question in three words, literally. Tell the truth. That yeah, is what people truth. want. That's all they want is to be told the truth. Yeah. And even if the truth hurts, especially when the truth hurts, that's when people respect you for telling it. We know that from our interpersonal relationships. It's easy to tell the truth when the truth is good. That doesn't really count for much. It's when you tell the truth about yourself or about what you represent that is not good, that is even bad, that you get credit for telling the truth. And this is what forms bonds between people, not trying to pretend you're perfect or your organization is perfect. And we talked about that a little bit last week. We won't talk about it again here, but this is how you, you develop bonds. You tell the truth to people and you let the chips fall where they may. I think we have a song about that in the LDS church. It's something about choose, uh, do what is right, let the consequence follow. Yeah. 
It's a song we sing a lot, but the leaders don't seem to to listen very carefully to the lyrics. I know numerous employees at BYU, professors who don't believe in the church and have to pretend to keep things going. I've seen it at uh, multiple levels at this point, uh, whether it be Hans Matson and other, you know, we've gotten uh, emails, you and I, and there's a lot more correspondence. I just saw John DeLynn recently got one. Bishops, stake presidents. You and I got a message this morning from a, a close friend who had just heard from another area authority mm -hmm. uh, who didn't believe and was seeking out the resources of our work um, and, and essentially acknowledging that, hey, I, I serve in some of the higher councils of the church and I know this thing isn't true. So there are a lot of folks who know, and yet the pressure is there to keep the thing going. We all, there is a lot of costly signaling to each other that you can only go so far. And so you and I have had conversations with folks like Patrick Mason. Um, I've had conversations with Terrell Givens. I've had conversations with the apologist at Fair Mormon. Um, I've spoken to um, Richard Bushman. Uh, I know, and again, I won't pick on any person in specifically, but I know that generally when you take that list of all these people who defend the church, what they say behind closed doors to you, and I've had private conversations with them, is very different than what they say on the air when the public is listening. And I can absolutely promise you, and again, I, if you think I'm lying, then call me out. That's fine. I absolutely promise you these people believe collectively to a lesser extent than they uh, put out publicly. And they acknowledge to a stronger degree, the messiness in Mormonism when they don't think that those conversations are going to be shared beyond. And by the way, church history department as well. I've had conversations at the church history department with church historians uh, that also have indicated that if they were having a private conversation, they would go a much further in describing the problems they have with the Mormon, with Mormon history and its theology. But it's this thing about Mormonism that makes us not be authentic. We cannot yeah. express. We're how all we faking it. Feel. We're all pretending. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, I was just in a hot tub last night with a couple of friends and we were talking about like Mormons never get into a deep conversation. And it's because every deep thing, sexuality, conscious altering drugs, my, I'm not a good father. I'm not a good husband. I'm not a good wife. I'm not a good mother. Uh, I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with that. I have, everything is bad in Mormonism. To the point where we all have to pretend we're hitting it out of the park and nobody wants to be the guy who is vulnerable and honest about the things that the church labels sin that is going on in our life. A porn addiction. Someone's got a masturbation issue. All these things that in the church are labeled bad. And we learn early on as Mormons that we are to show up nice and clean cut, smiling, pretending our family is doing perfectly. And the reality is it's, it's falling apart at our house just as bad as it is at our neighbors. It's my recent favorite expression. Mormonism makes liars of us all. Of us all. Every one of us. I lied. You lied. We all lie. When you're a Mormon, you have to lie. And yet we say like, oh, lying's wrong. Like you said, like, you know, do the right thing and let the consequence. It's no, part of the job description. Yeah. Is Dan Peterson doing the right thing? Is Tad Callister doing the right thing? Is Kwaku doing the right thing? Is Elder Holland doing the right thing? You know, these guys, when they say this. I think we'd also have to be honest. There may be some of these questions that there is no answer to. 
Yes. Those I think be the ones we avoid. Those are the questions we'll avoid. We're going to avoid the hard questions. And Fair Mormon does it. Quaku does it. Tad Callister does it. Dan Peterson does it. Hell, you can't be an apologist for the church in, unless you're as nice as Jim Bennett, and then you get picked up, picked on, and kicked down the street. You can't be that nice and honest. By the way, I understand Jim Bennett is still a little bit sore and walking funny after the last time you kicked him down the street. Well, that started off <laughs> slow and gentle, and it ended up being a lot stronger at the end. I would certainly recommend people go check out that seven-part conversation. Oh, my gosh. Any other callers? Nobody else has come on since uh, we started talking this last go-around. Oh, here comes one right now. Give me one oh. second. Okay, so Bill's going to take that call. He's going to uh, – he said, what's your name? I can read his list. Yeah, so, so we have Dave on the phone. Dave, uh, Dave. you are on Mormonism Live. Uh, what uh, What's on your mind, my friend? So I have a question. Uh, so I'm I'm coming from a background where um, I I was formerly uh, a tenured BYU professor, and um, and uh, you know, it was one of I mean, my my faith transition is, is one of the reasons uh, I moved on. Um, but I, you know, I observe, you know, living. I still live here in Utah. And I observe, I'm not blind to the benefits of, of the church and the rest of my family, is, you know, is completely in, they're all in. Um, and, you know, the phrase, you know, the, the way I see it, you know, um, I know for a lot of people, um, you know, the church is, is extremely destructive in their lives. And, it, and, and there's, there's very real evidence of that. But for a lot of people, it, it just seems to me, um, and the thing I struggle with is I know it's not true but it, it, for a lot of people, it's useful. And that's the thing I struggle with my, with my own family um, is there are benefits that come from it. And people say, you know, well, those benefits are not unique to the church, but at least here in Utah, you know, it's, it's, um, uh, you know, it, it's just such a powerful cultural influence, um, creates such types, uh, communities and bonds between individuals. And I'm just wondering your take on that and whether, You've been able to, you know, since being out, you've been able to replicate that sense of community um, elsewhere. Thanks. Can I riff on President Packer? You can riff on anybody you like, RFM. Yeah. It makes me think what Dave was saying that uh, lots of things that are not true are useful. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> lots of things that are not true are useful. And so I, and I've long maintained, and I'll repeat it here because I want to be understood correctly, is that uh, Mormonism worked so good for me for like the first five, seven years. Yeah. But then it just held on and held on and held on and would not let me out of that Shaolin temple, no matter how many times I snatched the stone out of uh, Master Poe's hand. Uh, I was trapped. I could not grow. I could not go beyond it. And uh, according to the terms of, you know, what I was taught. And so therefore it took me... 40 years, 40 years after I'd already learned everything that Mormonism had to teach me in five, really. Um, as to the community, um, honestly, if it works for you, it's great. It's wonderful. And I've got no objection to anybody being Mormon. God bless you. If it makes you happy, please do it. Um, on the other hand, I just be honest with you, okay? I really never had an experience of feeling community in the LDS church. It was all very thin, very surface, and very, um, not really friendship. I mean, the friends that I had typically, and there might be a couple of exceptions to this. By the way, there's two exceptions to us, and the, those friends are still my friends today. 
but generally my friends were people who were outside the church for whatever reason. That's just been my experience. I don't know if that's what other people have experienced too, but if you love the community, great. It doesn't make any difference whether it's true. If the community is important to you, then go for it, I think. Yeah. And and I did. I was in the Midwest. I was in Ohio. There were so few Mormons. We we had a congregation of about 120. We all had to drive, generally speaking, we all had to drive some distance. Some of our members had to drive 40 minutes just to get to our ward building and about an hour and 20 minutes for them to get to the stake center um, there in the Midwest. And we loved our ward family. If I was still in Ohio, I might, I might have de re, uh, deconstructed much slower and I would have stayed in the church longer. I don't think I'd still be in today, but I would have definitely stayed longer than I did. Coming out here to Utah, there is a huge Mormon presence, but there's also a huge ex-Mormon presence. And so being somewhat known here in Southern Utah because of the work that I do with the podcast, there is it's really easy for me, and I think it's even easier for people who aren't known, to reach out and make connections. Because like on Facebook, for instance, there is a Southern Utah post-Mormon group. That group has about a thousand people in it. And anytime someone comes on and goes, hey, I need help finding a plumber or, hey, I'm having a party at my house this weekend. Anybody want to come? Like you can see the interactions are happening. And when I go to these gatherings, whether it be a party or there's a good um, Exmo organization down here that puts on presentations once a month that you've spoken at and I've spoken at, they do a good job of keeping people connected. So if you're in highly concentrated Mormon areas, there's also going to be an ex-Mormon population. If you can figure out a way to reach those folks, then you can find community outside the church pretty easy. If you're in the Midwest, you're somewhere out in the mission field, it's going to be harder. And maybe your only friends are your ward members. Um, and I don't, I don't necessarily have a solution for that other than you're going to have to you're going to have to step out into the world and join a club, join something, do a, you know, get some hobby. But I can say for me, I don't feel I lost anything. I don't, I don't feel I'm a different person and I don't feel like I lost my community. I moved from one group of friends from Ohio. I had a lot of trouble making friends here because the moment I came here, I'm the guy who's raising his hand in Sunday school, who's countering everything that's being said. So I didn't really build much of friendships here, maybe one or two that I would I would call they were of value to me and I felt like I was treated with respect and kindness and vice versa. But um, when I left the church, I made friends really easy and I still hang out with those people today and I value those friendships and they're real and vulnerable and deep. Um, I don't feel I've lost something. Anyway, that was me rambling. Um, if somebody else wants to call, we'll take another call or two. Again, the number is 435-200-3478. You and I sat down for about 20 minutes one morning trying to make an acronym or some kind of word from some of our phone numbers so we could say like 1-800-MORMON, you know, and it, <laughs> it, it didn't work out that easy. Don't forget 3478 is FIST. FIST, 3478. One, or yeah, 435-200-FIST. Yeah. There we go. We can just put FIST there. We tried to come up with a number that had T-I-T-S, but it just didn't work. Okay, we do have a call, RFM. I'm going to just mute myself for a second. Okay. Okay. Yeah, Bill. Here we go, Steve. Steve. <laughs> I don't have any time to cover for you. Yeah, we've got Steve on the line. Steve, uh, what's on your mind? I said, what's on your mind, my friend? Oh, um, just uh, really appreciate you guys uh, dissecting all this. It's, it's, it's really... Um, 
interesting to see it parse it out. And, and uh, it makes me think, and I just have some random thoughts to kind of contribute and would love to hear you guys riff on it, is uh, just how sad this confrontation, uh, this belief that confrontation is of the devil and how much that's permeated our culture. And we are not allowed to confront each other when we're being fake. And I think that might lead to some of the inauthenticity that we experience in Mormonism because we try to gloss it over and put on this this uh, this polite uh, fakeness to each other, even though sometimes to have that real relationship, you have to have strong, meaningful conversations. And then we, we're, we're shamed for challenging our leaders. And uh, Mormonism for me, um, when when I was growing up, it seemed, you know, it was very much, you know, you know, a young farm boy wants to go out and find out, you know, truth from God. So he goes out and he finds some truth. And there was this dynamic uh, learning and growing uh, type of mindset that we were always being encouraged to learn. You know, if we have the truth, you know, what do we have the fear of it being challenged? And now it, Mormonism has kind of morphed into this. Uh, don't look at the information on the Internet. Only look at approved sources. You know, uh, kind of this kind of this closing of the Mormon mind in, in the culture. And, you know, obviously excommunicating people for challenging leaders like Bill Real and calling them out for their lies. Um, and it, it's 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 really a, a sad state of affairs uh, for the church. You know, uh, the best leaders I've seen in my life. And I come from a from a background in the military. Uh, welcome their ideas being challenged, and you have to have their ideas fight it out. And then the best idea can go forward, you know, especially in an operational framework where you, you don't want people to die. So you want you want that pushback. You want people to challenge and shoot your ideas to bits, and then hopefully you come back with something better. But uh, you know, our leaders won't even go, uh, won't even exhibit the courage of like a um, an author who goes on a book tour. And takes his book around to different colleges and has college kids kick back and tear their ideas apart, and then they refine their thinking. But our, our leaders won't do even that, and it's it's a uh, it's just it's a sad sad state of affairs for Mormonism. And I, I appreciate you guys kind of tossing it out there, even though I don't think anybody's listening. Uh, you know, if if we can see some courage from the leadership to actually you know go out there and be scrutinized a little, we probably get some better decisions being made up there in the ivory tower. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I can I can guarantee you that we're being scrutinized and monitored by at least one general authority, who is the head of the uh, the whether the the strengthening church members committee. Yeah, oh, you gave you gave out a didn't you give it us phone number at one point on one of your episodes? I think you gave out a phone number to the strengthening church members committee. That to me was one of the funnest experiences. That was one of the funnest experiences RFM I have ever had in my life. Was you get the phone number for the strengthening church members committee. You pass it out on one of your episodes and they have to essentially shut the committee, shut the office down for the day because they got like a thousand phone calls. I laughed. There were like three or four times during the day. I just, just started thinking about what you had done and just started rolling laughing. Um, I think it's important to know two things he said in that previous call. One is that you can't have any anger. You have to be nice in Mormonism. You have to talk like this. This is the voice you have to use. And if you look angry, then you've lost the spirit and you can't be trusted. So there's that idea. And then there's the idea you can't criticize a leader at all, right? Wrong to criticize leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. Even if the criticism is true, you can't criticize leaders of the church. Did you cut um, him off before he said, Luke, I am your father? <laughs> right. It does kind of sound a little Didn't bit they like say that. that right next. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. So you can't criticize leaders. And so the mechanisms are in place that all of the believers who are naive and think the church is true without problem, they see you being upset. They see you saying anything negative about the leaders as, oh my goodness, look at Gary over there, brother, brother Jones. 
He's flirting with apostasy. He's on, he's over there. He's risking it. He's, you don't want to be like Gary. You don't want to be like brother Jones. And so there's no way that any of us can ever talk about the messiness of the church because sooner or later, we're going to have some frustration and we're going to criticize the leaders. Yeah. The church is, you, okay. The church is structured in such a way is that we, we cannot think, we cannot say what we really think. Um, I know that I, there must be a phone call coming in, but I did want to talk about something else that was just mentioned, which is that when I joined the church too, 40 years ago, this is a powerful church. It said, we have the truth. We can prove the truth. We don't need to be afraid of the truth. The truth will support us. It will not hurt us. And then at the same time, though, my brother joined the Jehovah's Witness. I saw that there was an XJW who just made a comment. My brother's joined. The, my brother joined the Jehovah's Witnesses 40 years ago. I joined the Mormons. My parents were ecstatic. And I read their materials, uh, their Awake magazine, their Watchtower magazine, and I saw that they actively discouraged their members from reading or learning about any other church and not being open to other information. In fact, they discourage post-secondary education, why it's so rare that you will ever meet a Jehovah's Witness who's been to college, because that's part of their, their religion. They don't want their members to learn about things because they think that they'll stop being Jehovah's Witnesses, which happens frequently. But the whole point of that being that I compared Mormonism at the, at the time to Jehovah's Witnesses, and I thought, we've got this hands down. They are scared to death. You know, we're the ones who are bold and confident. The Jehovah's Witnesses are over here shaking in a corner from learning anything or having their members find out anything. And then 40 years go by, and I start to see us being the Jehovah's Witnesses now. Now we're the ones who are in the corner shaking and worrying that the members will find out everything. I mean, the, the leaders will talk the talk, but they won't walk the walk. They'll say, go ahead and go on the internet, but only look at official church approved sources, right? Yeah. So it's that kind of thing. Anyway, I just want to make that comment about what that previous caller had said. Do you have somebody else on the line, Bill? Yeah, we've got James. And uh, you want to make this our last call, RFM? Up to you. Okay, I'm, we're at 7.55. We've gone about an hour and a half. Let's, uh, let's make this the last call. James, you're going to wrap up the night here on Mormonism Live. You are on with RFM and Bill Real. What can we do for you? Make it good. Fantastic. Well, I wanted to thank both of you. You've definitely, uh, I think, been a support to many believing Mormons, many Mormons with faith transitions, many that are out of the church. I think it's good to have dialogue and discussion. Um, let there be dialogue and discourse, and then truth will emerge triumphant. I wanted to add one thing, and I, had, well, I have to apologize to all of your viewers and everyone, because I think I single-handedly have had most, more influence on Daniel Peterson than anyone else. And let me explain how. Please. Um, I have influenced his worldview on a daily basis. I've been to his house hundreds of times, actually thousands of times over the years. I was his paper boy. <laughs> so I brought him the newspaper every single day and influenced his worldview. So um, I, I, I apologize for my uh, my contributions to that. What, was it just the Deseret again? Was it the Deseret News, or were you driven? Were you delivering the Tribune to him? Because if it was a Tribune, I don't think he was reading it. <laughs> it was the Deseret News. Yeah. Did you make any deliveries of uh, uh, publications wrapped in brown paper? Um, he's actually a, a really nice guy um, in person. Great family. Um, believe it or not, he he uh, at one time at least he drove a Porsche. But uh, yeah, it, we're all at different. But he outgrew it. Parts of our past. Um, but it's it's good that we can have this this dialogue and this discussion, and people can think and they can. It's good that there's a space for people to um, to express their views and to, to listen to other points of views. Um, I think that's healthy. I think that's strong. 
And I think that everyone is better off for that. Um, it's good yeah. that we have Daniel Pearson's view. It's good that we have Bill Reel's view, that we have RFM's view, my view. Uh, it's, I think we all benefit um, and grow stronger through that. But it's, it's, it's a challenge sometimes. Exploring all those, uh, those new ideas can be, can be hard. And, and you know, especially people in, in mixed faith marriages, et cetera. But I just want to commend you for, for what you're doing and um, know that it blesses the lives of many, both in and outside of the church. It really does. Yeah. Thank you very much, my friend. Thank you very much for that. Hashtag tender mercies. That's our hashtag now, Bill. We're, we're giving those tender mercies out into the lives of, of many people. Hashtag we're blessing them. (laughs) No, I'm serious. We, I'm sure we are. And I appreciate that comment. And and I'm, I'm, by the way, I agree with him, but there's a difference on both sides of this aisle, which is on the progressive Mormon. uh, And actually actually we get another call. I'm just going to exit out. Um, So, on both sides of the aisle, on one side is the ex-Mormons who say like, literally, like, let's put all the information on the table. This guy says like, all voices should be heard. And I agree with you. Like every view should be out there. And the views that are ridiculous and absurd will be pointed out as ridiculous and absurd. And they will, they will drift away through the ridicule that happens when you feel uh, embarrassed about putting out nonsense. Those will go away. Um, I don't think we're going to have flat earthers a thousand years from now. That that argument will go away. The other side of the coin, though, is that the apologist, and we've already seen it with Tad McCall or Tad Cal or Collister, sorry, and Dan Peterson and Quaku, they all avoid telling you the full story. They're always obfuscating. This is Mormonism 101. There is so much obfuscation, deflection, dismissal, lack of transparency, lack of accountability, uh, and lack of honesty. And so one side is perfectly okay, putting all the data on the table. And the other side wants to tell you that there isn't even anybody in the next room. They're not there. They're not there. And that game is also dishonest. Fair Mormon, when they fail to tell you the full argument, and by the way, this goes back to, I think it's Elder Oaks who said, the church doesn't have a responsibility to give any of the critics information. And the critic doesn't have any responsibility to give the faithful information. But that's, that's, kind of bullcrap. Like if we all want to be adults and learn information and chase down the truth, then we have to have all information in our purview. And what Oaks is saying is that believers should stay away from the anti and anti should stay away from the faithful. And, and we should all just work in a vacuum. And the reality is nobody can get to the truth when you do that. Everybody should have access to the truth. Yeah, and actually, uh, Elder Oaks from back from the 1980s, I know the quote you're talking about, I used it once in a podcast. It's even worse than that. He says that the LDS church does not have an obligation to tell both sides yeah. of the story. And, and, the, and that's where the truth is. The truth is when you put both sides out there. That's the truth. The truth is somewhere in between all views, and you have to have all views to be able to get to it. Wow, I think that was a chiasm. There, there we go. That was A-B-B-A. Yes, that's it. That wasn't Alma 36. But it might have been as good as a nursery rhyme or so. <laughs> well, so are we done? I think we're all finished. Anything else uh, you want to wrap up with on this topic? I think we blew this one up again, just like last week. If you tell this argument again going forward, if you talk about how Alma has evidence of the church being true as a name, a masculine name, just don't. We don't want to do another podcast on it, do we, RFM? Don't go there. Don't make us come back. Don't make us come back there. Yeah, that's right. Don't make us come back there, you little one. Yeah, and fair those fair Mormon videos, right? The TITS videos. 
not only do they not tell the other side, they delete the comment function so that other people can't tell the other side. And they sure as heck aren't going to take any phone calls from people. Yeah, we got up to 182. I saw 182 people in this live feed at one point. Really? I think the first week, week we were at like 120 to 130. The next week, it was like 145. Then it was 160 something. And then today, I saw it get up to 182. That's growth, RFM. It's yes. small numbers, but it is growth. We're not 12 million or 15 million, but we're getting bigger. This is like double-digit state creation every Look, week. Every week, <laughs> RFM, double-digit state creation. That's what we're doing here on Mormonism Live. But everybody, please, tell your friends. Have them all join. Have, have a, a Mormonism Live party, although you should socially distance and wear your mask. But have a party over at your house. Tell all your friends, please, so we can increase this number gathering every week at 6.20 p.m. Mountain Standard Time until next Wednesday. Everybody have a happy new year from Mormonism Live.